All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce you to our guest today, Jonathan Klain. Jonathan is Senior Safety Editor for Lab Manager Magazine and has been in the fields of environmental health safety and risk for 35 years in many roles. He's also a PhD candidate in Human and Social Dimensions of Science and Technology, where he studies in two large areas, risk perceptions, cognitive biases, and decision-making, and storytelling, and how it affects how we see risks and its many other useful benefits. So, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. It's a real pleasure to be here. So share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to doing what you're doing. Yeah, sure. So I started in Maine, actually, as an environmental geologist and an industrial hygienist. My undergrad's in geology, and I got hired to do industrial hygiene, which is really just exposure science. So listeners in manufacturing would know processes generate vapors, fumes, etc. And someone has to know how to measure that and figure it all out. So I did that and gradually ended up doing training, then taught college for a number of years, enjoyed that. And that exposed me to all sorts of different clients. And from there, I got back into consulting on my own, did that for a number of years before finally migrating out to Arizona, where I worked for Arizona State University as a safety director. Actually, on my card, it actually said bald-headed safety guy. That was my title. It's awesome. <laughs> I figured people I always vouch, say. Even though, and even though this is audio only, I can vouch you yeah. are the bald-headed safety guy. <laughs> people would say, how did you get that on the cards? And I would always say, oh, I figured out how to hack the system. But it was really that no one really cared. So right. it was a nice joke. I did that for 10 years and a couple of different colleges of engineering. And then that eventually took me to this wonderful role that I'm in, where I finally write for a living, which I very much enjoy doing that for Lab Manager Magazine. It's a great, it's a great place, wonderful people. And we write about all sorts of th- stuff dealing with labs. Senior safety editor, I write mostly about lab safety, about risk. And of course, as part of the PhD program, I write a little bit about storytelling or I engage in storytelling as part of what I And I think that both of those are so important to the manufacturing office audience because, of course, risk is an inherent part of working in a plant environment and from the what you were saying earlier with the fumes you want to make sure that you're keeping your workers as safe as possible but that also brings us into storytelling that you can convey to your employees the importance of what they do and how you're taking care of them and giving them the story the reasoning behind why what they do is so important so let's start with risk. And just because, of course, that's what you want to avoid the most in manufacturing. But how would you describe risk? And some? what are some of our perceptions as far as risk goes? Yeah. So risk is really a much better concept than just safety. In safety, we always say, 
you're safe or you're not safe. And it's such a binary concept that it's not usually useful. There's so many nuances to it. But risk, and I'm sure a lot of your audience is familiar with this, you can look at it as two factors or three factors. So the two in particular to start, what's what is the probability of something happening? Basically, what's the odds, right? And then, of course, how bad will it be? What's the severity of the consequence, right? <clears throat> and so in manufacturing, besides processes that generate vapors and fumes and dusts and all of that sort of stuff, or maybe it generates a dust that collects, and then the worst thing that could happen is they could have a combustible dust explosion. That has happened across many industries. It could be guarding issues, and right? So the worst there is someone can get devastatingly injured or even killed if they bypass the guards or if the machinery doesn't have the proper guards or if someone starts up equipment, et cetera. So we can really analyze things by severity and probability. The third factor that I do like to use and others use, some don't, is exposure. How exposed are we? So an operator, let's say, of a system that's got product moving past them and they have to check it, if they're within touching distance of the operation, they have a significant amount of exposure to that risk, probability, severity, what can happen, et cetera, et cetera. And as opposed to someone else who's much further away, <clears throat> they have far less exposure to it and thus far less probability. And some people embed exposure into the probability part of the equation. Perhaps the better analogy, and I'll use some risk perceptions for this as well, is, or the better example, is that a lot of us can relate to is biking. You know, I don't know. Do you bike by chance or do oh, you yeah. know how to bike? Yeah. And, yeah. And I make, uh, I wear a helmet and I make my husband wear a helmet, much to his dismay. I wear a helmet. I have no protection except the helmet and in my skin. As we said, I've, I've been hit by a car. I've wiped out on my own. I don't know how many times my head has hit the pavement. I don't know how many times with a helmet on. Obviously it rings my bell so to speak, but I always am able to walk away because I've got that protection. So I have a perception of the risk and I've taken the step where I think I have the most critical exposure to the hazard. But here's here, here's a good way of looking at it, Lisa. When I used to work at Arizona State, there's about a nine-mile bike commute. And one night on the way home on a major drag, very big road, University Drive, I got hit. By a car. Police officer responded. The guy drove away, never found them, right? And the police uh, officer said, you had the right of way, etc. So sorry, glad you're okay and all. <clears throat> and the next day at work, I told a buddy of mine, Rick, and he said, John, you got to get off the major roads, right? There's just too much traffic, right? So you're exposed to a lot more traffic at a lot higher speed. They're not paying attention. He said, get on the side roads, where there's less traffic, they're going slower. Follow me home, I'll show you the way. So all of a sudden, by changing my route, I was able to reduce really all of the factors of the risk, right? Exposure, probability, and to an extent, severity. Getting hit by a car going 45 is gonna be different from getting hit by a car going 25, right? Odds on. Mm. And so it's this, how do I recognize the risk factors and then how do I control them just as plant managers do, health and safety, people do supervisors on lines, maybe the maintenance crew does. I used to work with a lot of the maintenance crews in all sorts of manufacturing and other facilities. And 
one person is going to perceive risk different from another person. I live in Arizona and we get dust storms. We had one last night. Now our shingles have been upset by the winds. So our shingles are actually going to be replaced. And the roofer was on the house, right? Taking a look, the guy inspecting it. And we were joking back and forth. And he said, it doesn't bother him in the least, right? But he's got a brother-in-law who is in law enforcement and has been shot twice. So, you know, to each his or her or their own, how do we perceive the risks? And we're generally speaking, and the science speaks to this very clearly, we're very comfortable with the risks that we know that we take on ourselves willingly, not forced upon us. If I want to wear a mask for COVID, I feel okay about it. If someone is making me wear the mask and I'm resistant, I probably don't feel good about it. If I'm doing it willingly, I don't see it as a big risk. If If it's being forced on me, I'm probably going to assign it a negative. We call it a valence, but basically a value. And therefore, think that there is much greater risk. So risk is really about our human perceptions, which are incredibly subjective and varies tremendously. Yeah. And I think that when you said at the beginning, you're either safe or you're not, Mm. that's black and white, where with the risk, there's a whole lot of gray thrown in there. And in the manufacturing, and I don't remember if this was an audience member or a podcast guest, but what they had implemented, and a, I think they called them like potya cards, something like that, that mm. if they saw somebody participating in a risky behavior, basically they called them on it. They said, mm. hey, you're, and the funny thing is the person that I was talking to was the manager who implemented this program. And one of his employees busted him because he was unsafe on a ladder reaching for something and could have gotten in trouble. Mm. or he could have gotten hurt as a result of it. And the manager was like, yeah, of course, give me a card because you legitimately caught me and perhaps prevented me from getting hurt. Mm. When we look in the maintenance environment, we have to create that safe environment where people don't feel like they're snitching. If nothing bad happens, nothing bad's going to happen. There's this little tiny chance that it's going to, and then are you going to feel bad because you didn't quote unquote snitch on that person, but we're looking at keeping everybody safe. Yes. And our brains are great, but they create what we call heuristics, mental shortcuts, because our brain is about 2% of our body weight, but it it consumes 20% of the energy that we use, right? So it's an energy hog, fuel hog, but it's our brain. It needs it. Part of the way we've evolved is to create these mental shortcuts. They're called heuristics and all sorts of stuff, right? And it's very subjective to us. So it, it might be that a heuristic might be, I've never been hurt by this operation, therefore it is safe and not addressing the fact that odds have a way of catching up. So like when I would bike and I would go through neighborhoods instead of on the major roads, I live on a grid system, right? Everything is 90 degrees off, but there's neighborhoods that I could cut through. So it lowered the risk and I might drive dozens, hundreds of times. I actually measured it because of the nature of what I do with risk and studying it, that on like the 500th time, all of a sudden there's a car coming in this place that there's never been a car before. But if I was not paying attention to it, I might've been hit by it because I didn't expect the car, 
He didn't expect the biker, but after doing it, hundreds and hundreds of, it finally happened. And I remembered, my dad told me his story. I wrote a long form creative nonfiction about it. My dad said, hey, Johnny, now that you've got a 10 speed bike, I was a kid at the time, you got to remember something. I said, what's that, dad? He said, there's always someone coming. And it's like gun safety. The gun's always loaded, right? You're biking around neighborhoods. You're not paying close attention. There's always someone coming. And the other one my dad would use, I don't know where he got all of these things. I'm pretty sure he didn't come up with them himself, right? But they were good. They lasted with me over the decades, Lisa. He said, Johnny, there's a lot of people in heaven who had the right of it. And it's just such a great, powerful metaphor, right? And that's the thing. It only takes that one time. I think about what we just went through with the uh, the devastation from Hurricane Ian. Hmm. And there were a whole bunch of people that evacuated who are probably mad because they evacuated and they didn't need to. And then there's a whole bunch of other people who didn't eva evacuate who wish they would have because they lost everything. So that's right. the thing. We never know when that one incident is going to happen that changes everything, or like you just said, causes us to go to heaven. Hopefully. Yeah. And it's about our consistent behaviors, our habits, and even, so think in terms of work teams, our rituals, right? Like sport, sports figures, right? Like Nadal and so many different, different sports, right? Whether it's tennis or baseball or football or whatever, they have rituals. And there's very good science. I just read another a paper where rituals help very much with our brain in putting ourselves in the right frame of mind and preparing for what we're trying to do. And rituals, which really don't mean anything. They don't actually have a physical construct to them, meaning they haven't changed something that's going to occur, but they have so much meaning to us. For instance, a wedding, right? A wedding isn't the legal mechanism. There's paperwork, there's legal stuff, but the wedding itself is a ritual which has tremendous value and meaning, not just to the couple, but to everyone involved. And they've even done studies to look at oxytocin levels, the human love and bonding chemical. And the closer the people are to the people that matter the most, so in the case of a wedding, a bride and a groom, or two brides or two grooms, and they did oxytocin levels. And the closer they were to that, uh, the higher the oxytocin levels. I think the quote was the bride's level was just off the chart. Her oxytocin level was like through the roof. And so... It's really these habits that we get into. My habit of biking on side roads helped protect me. But greater than that, my writing that long form story about biking risk, about conversations with my dad in episodes I had or witnessed, including my crashes and others that I helped take care of or tried to avert, actually caused the behavior change in me that the writing of the stories and the meaning of the stories and how powerful they were caused me to reflect on whether I would wear like earbuds and listen to music, which I absolutely loved to do. I remember it fondly, but because it was so meaningful in such an emotional way to write those stories that I realized I was driving up the risk by having earbuds in where I couldn't hear mm. traffic and by trying to see how fast I could get to work and time myself and see if I could beat my times. Those are risk increasing behaviors. And so it was right. only through this 
self-storytelling that I was able to actually get rid of those behaviors. So we're back to the power of stories, which can yeah. be used for health and safety purposes. And that's what I was just going to go into now, because when I think about storytelling and I think of manufacturing and specifically attracting people into manufacturing, opening up as a viable career path. Part of that is bringing employees in with the story. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things that you're seeing as far as companies using stories? I know that you've talked to a whole lot of people in your PhD research, but how are companies using stories to attract new people to the company and also to, to use it as an engagement tool to keep the people that they have. Absolutely. In so many ways, it's really amazing to me how much I'm exposed to this. And it's a great question, Lisa. So just one example I've seen for several companies, including ours, LabX Media Group, that we have instead of a, an employee handbook or manual, it's a playbook. And the playbook is really about the culture. You've probably seen this with a lot of your clients and all, right? And I saw this with another local company here, and I read through the entire playbook, and it really tells the story of what the culture is like, because an employee wants to know what's it going to be like there. I understand the job because I've done that job or similar jobs, but what are the people like? What's the culture like? And the same thing goes for the company. They want to know about that person. A great way of learning is to ask someone. So there's the usual question, tell me a bit about yourself or whatever. And you and I were chatting a little bit before and I shared the advice I had gotten, which I think is great, which is if you want the truth, don't control the answer, right? Well, ask them. Very, actually very scary. Very scary. You get the truth and sometimes that's really helpful. And there's good research on vulnerability and how we can bond and relate and how do people relate. So a good question instead of tell me about yourself is tell me a story. Tell me a story that has meaning for you. And stories are just such a wonderful way to create meaning-making. They're considered by the researchers meaning-making and sense-making tools. They allow us as the storyteller and the story receiver, listener, reader, viewer, to have a better sense and understanding of the world around us as described, whatever that world is in that story, real or fictional, right? Could be Middle Earth, like Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> Can be outer space, right? Tatooine with Luke, right? And Leia and all right. of that sort of stuff. And we have the willful suspension of disbelief where we're so wired for stories, Lisa, that we're willing to give up the reality and let ourselves be what's called transported into the story, which really is the best thing that a storyteller is looking for, is that the viewer, reader, whatever, listener, feels like they're they're part of this story, where time has a way of slipping away. So stories can be a great way for work groups to better relate. Stories can be a great way for different groups to understand each other, for different people within a group to understand their different perspectives and perceptions of the same situation. Maybe it was an incident. Maybe it was a close call. What was going on? What was what were people really doing at the time thinking? And stories can be a great way. People can collaborate on a story. People can tell different stories about the same thing and tell each other. 
And then there's just much, so much wonderful relatability to it and context and meaning making that it can really help make teams much more effective. And it can also, if it's done well, and, and it can be done well fairly easily. And I know this is something that Scott and you talked about to build psychological safety as well, because stories are a great way to express one's vulnerabilities, which we all want to be able to relate to. Well, and I think it also makes it easier for people to remember. If you're trying to share numbers and statistics and all of these things with your employees, they don't care. They don't remember it two seconds after they walk out of the meeting. But if you show them specifically a story that ties in to what they're doing, to the difference that they're making, to what the increase means over something else. It's one of my favorite books, actually, is Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything. And he was talking about the, the size of the atom in a molecule. And he said that if you put a piece of paper next to the Empire State Building, that is the neutron of the atom compared to the size of the rest of it. In my whole life, mm. I would never think of the size of an atom, but it was the story that he told me. And I read that book years ago. Actually, I just reread it because I like it so much. But yeah. that's the thing that makes a difference that we remember stories. We don't remember numbers. We don't remember percentages as such. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You're getting it so much of the research is almost as if you could be teaching this stuff, Lisa, <laughs> really. So it's been studied since, God, I think the 70s, Eldon Tulbing, that we have all sorts of different memory aspects, but a couple include semantic memory, which is like you were saying, facts, figures, data, statistics, which we, the brain is not wired well to recall, easy right. to forget type stuff. And then we have something called episodic memory, which is pretty obvious. It's about episodes. What's an episode? An episode is a story. And that's what life is. Life is stories. That's how we're wired, right? And so stories are a wonderful way to be able to get people to remember things. I, I did a study with others when I was at Arizona State, and it was whether or not humor or stories work better in safety. And so in manufacturing, you got to do a lot of safety training. Right. So in this case, it was biomedical engineering students, and we had to do fire safety, lab safety, and biosafety, three courses in seven class sections. So that's 21 courses every semester. That's a lot. And I said to the faculty person in charge, I said, I don't know what's working. And she's they like it. I'm like, yeah, I like it. Smiley faces. That's not telling us how much, how effective it is. So long story short, she collaborated with me and I designed a study where I delivered it because you had two sections for each class, we had a good control and subject. So one got just humor with no story to it and one got story that was serious stories, no humor to it. And then we did a pretest, which of course everyone bombed and they hated, but we said it doesn't count towards your grade, don't worry. They still hated it, right? They're yeah. good students. And then I asked another PhD student, he's now a professor himself at uh, University of Houston. And I said, Zia, how long do I have to wait to get rid of the priming effect from just giving them the training? He said, John, wait at least two weeks. So we waited three weeks. So they went from bombing in the cellar, my hands way down at the floor, to everyone did great three weeks later. 
And that's still fairly recent. And there's the bias of recency. We remember a lot of recent stuff better. And so then, because it was students, we had the opportunity to test them three months later at the end of the semester. Guess which sections did better on average? I would have to say the story. Yeah, the story, the ones who got it strictly as story. We yeah. actually had one, I said there were seven sections and there was one court, one class that was not split. So we gave them funny stories. Even funny stories did not do as well as serious stories did. Huh. And I wasn't sure why at the time, but the more I look at it now, the more I understand it is affective, meaning emotional stories that are the most powerful. Because if you think back to our evolution, 100, 160,000 years ago, let's say on the savannah, we were living in these little groups, these little hunter-gatherer populations, call them tribes if you want, clans, whatever. We relied upon each other, human bonding and relying upon each other. That's a lot of why we're wired so closely to these sorts of things. And a great researcher a number of years ago found that through emotionally laden stories, we secrete different hormones. So if you look at the five-part story structure that Freitag and others describe, right? Horace back in 33 BC, I think it was, started, but Freitag in 1900. So there's exposition, the setting, what's going on, okay? Then biking. Then there's tension building, right? He's weaving in and out of traffic. Then there's the peak or climax of the story. Oh my God, he gets hurt or whatever. Then there's descending action. And then there's a resolution or denouement. And if it's a Disney or Hallmark or whatever, heartfelt. Right. During tension building, we secrete cortisol, the stress hormone. If there's a mm. lot of, oh my God, especially narrative transportation. At the story peak or climax, Dr. Paul Zak, Z-A-K, discovered that we secrete oxytocin, human love and bonding chemical. And then if you have that wonderful, again, heartfelt moment at the end, you get a shot of dopamine as well. And so wow. there's wonderful, what we call empiric evidence, just meaning that we've collected samples, basically made observations. We can see this in very real ways that stories have phenomenal power. Everything we've been talking about, context, sense-making tools, memory aids, relatability, but also how it allows us to really bond together. So going back to your question and my research about how am I seeing it being used, a lot of these people, I'm interviewing health and safety directors and others in similar roles are telling me, I use it, John, because I need to be able to relate. In their case, it's usually researchers in research labs. In manufacturing, it might be plant manager needing to relate to the workers and telling a story probably where that plant manager had a problem, didn't do well, right? So you look at an author like Kurt Vonnegut, right? Kurt Vonnegut has great tips on how to tell a good short story or how to write one. And one of them is be a sadist to your leading characters. Let us see what they're made of. Mm -hmm. And so telling stories, including about ourselves, and being vulnerable, like we were talking about before, is a great way for people to really feel related and bonding with us and develop empathy and community and team effectiveness all together. It's really neat. 
Yeah, and I think as we're getting to the end of our time together, mm-hmm. that's the sticking point when it comes to leaders, that ability to, number one, be vulnerable, mm-hmm. to show what they're made of so that their employees are more likely to buy in, but also to to share the story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and not be so focused on the numbers, the production numbers. How can you tie that into a story so employees will get it and retain the information. And like you said, from not only the production, but a safety standpoint as well. So what would be your best tip or piece of advice for people listening today? Yeah, absolutely. What you were just saying, Lisa, I'll just wrap it up in a bow as as the metaphor goes, right? And metaphors work. Think about metaphors, very powerful. The research is good. Tell emotional stories, be willing to be vulnerable in it. And to your point, take the data, don't present it dry, weave it into the story. Creative nonfiction, true stories well told, as the godfather of creative nonfiction, one of my professors, Lee Gutkind, would say, editor of the Journal of Creative Nonfiction, John, weave your data into the story. And that's a lot of what we do in health and safety. How do we tell a story that involves this toxic gas, so many parts per million, and so much technical jargon that people can't relate to it, right? I struggle to relate to it, and I know all this stuff. Right. (laughs) But if you weave it into a wonderful, heartfelt story, and there's drama, and there's people, and oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And you use the structure of a story. It's really wonderful. Two two last things. I asked this in a workshop I teach on how to communicate scientific and technical concepts. And I asked them these two rhetorical questions. How many of you would say that you have plenty of empathy that you get in your life? You don't need anyone to be any more empathic to you. You're getting plenty of empathy already, right? No one's saying that. A single hand goes up. No, exactly. And then I say... And how many of you would then also say, but you know what, John, you know what the one thing I need more of? I need to be judged more. That's what I need. (laughs) Judgment. So pretty obvious there. So use stories in a way to build empathy for bonding, for sense making, for memory, just for so many things that work so well and really, and they will increase empathy when done well. And they will really help decrease the judgment. And we all have a fear of being judged, which, as you know very well, you and I were talking a lot about it. People don't want to say anything because they fear there's going to be some judgment, retribution, I did something wrong. So that plan manager who said, yeah, you caught me, fill out a card, you caught me, and that's good. That's the best way of doing it. I think that's great. Awesome. And if people wanted to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Sure. Yeah. At uh, Lab Manager, I can be reached at J Klain. Klain is K L A N E at labmanager.com. Feel free. Right. And of course, on LinkedIn as well. And I'll send you the link. But Jonathan Klain, I don't know how many Jonathan Klains there are. Not too many. Right. You should be able to find me. And if you can't remember that, I will say this email still works. My Arizona State one for research purposes and all as a student. Bald safety guy at asu.edu will also reach me. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> not, well, Jonathan, not many people who have seen me forget that email address, Lisa. Jonathan, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Oh, thank you, Lisa. This was wonderful. So enjoyable and good fortune to you in all different ways. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow the network, the stronger and deeper the community will all have. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.